You are listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, Season 1, Episode 21. With Citizenship and Immigration Canada making it increasingly difficult to speak to an officer, there are a few places to turn for information that can be relied upon. The Canadian Immigration Podcast was created to fill this void by offering the latest information on Canadian law, policy, and practice. Please welcome ex-immigration officer and Canadian immigration lawyer, Mark Holthy. As he answers a wide variety of immigration questions and shares practical tips and guidance to help you along your way. Well, hello there, and welcome back to the Canadian Immigration Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Holthy, coming to you from the beautiful province of Alberta, Canada. In this episode, episode 21, I had the distinct pleasure of interviewing Danny Willets. She is an immigration consultant practicing in the second most beautiful province in Canada, British Columbia. And I invited Danny to share some insight on study permits. And all of you international students who are looking at immigrating to Canada and uh, are thinking about applying for a study permit, this is an an interview you are not going to want to miss. And the reason is because Danny is not just a certified Canadian immigration consultant. She spent over 25 years working within the Department of Citizenship and Immigration, and she scoops up all of those 25 years of experience and crams them into a little interview with me, all for your benefit. And she was so gracious, so generous in her strategies, her tips, all designed to help you strengthen your applications and improve your chances of success. Let's face it, it is not always easy to get a study permit. But with the tips and strategies that Danny shares with us in this episode, it doesn't matter who you are, whether you're applying for a study permit, whether you're applying for a visitor visa, or even a foreign work permit at a consulate abroad, the principles that she shares with us are truly valuable and will help. So without any further ado, I want to jump into my interview with Danny Willits, and I'm so grateful for her that she was able to join us. Uh, Let's jump to that call right now. Well, welcome to the Canadian Immigration Podcast. I am here with my special guest, Danny Willits. She is an ex-immigration officer in all various forms you can imagine. Welcome, Danny. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, let me go through a little bit of a bio because I think it will really help our listeners to, to understand exactly who we're dealing with here. And this is really a special treat. Um, we've been fortunate to have immigration lawyers on and other practitioners, but um, to have people who have uh, really an extensive amount of industry, internal industry experience is, is really, really awesome. So thank you once again for coming on. All right. So uh, Ms. Willits has been an accredited immigration consultant since August of 2013. But before that, she worked with the Department of Citizenship and Immigration Canada for 25 years. She was originally an immigration officer And then 10 years prior to retiring from the department, she was primarily an immigration supervisor. So she has extensive experience in every inland immigration program and several overseas programs, including uh, study permits, which is one of the reasons why I just had to get her on the podcast to to share some insight with our listeners. Um, Although substantively a decision maker and supervisor, her career has also included opportunities to work in just a number of different capacities. It's quite amazing, actually. So when I start rattling off these, uh, intelligence liaison officer, justice liaison officer, regional program advisor, senior policy advisor, PRA coordinator, visa officer, manager, director, it's just, it seems like it's unending. But the one I have to ask you about just a little bit more is your your responsibility um, of being a supervisor in charge of outreach for the 2010 Winter Olympics and the regional training coordinator. So what was that like? Um, one of the cool things that people probably don't realize is Canada was the first country to actually bring in um, all the participants and everybody involved uh, with working for the Olympics 
uh, using proper documentation. Most other countries wound up just giving up and letting them come in. So Canada did a very good job uh, during the Olympics with very little to go on. Um, but probably my favorite part of uh, doing the, uh, there were two favorite parts. One was I was liaison to um, CBSA. So I was involved with them on all the enforcement and I was on call 24 seven. But the second part was bringing in the people for the opening and closing ceremonies. And we had to be uh, sworn to secrecy on that. We weren't allowed to tell. They actually wanted me to sign a non-disclosure agreement, but I couldn't because I couldn't sign for the department. Ultimately, they wound up agreeing that, you know, given the confidentiality with which the, the Department of Citizenship and Immigration, now Immigration and Refugee Citizenship <laughs> Canada, whatever they are now. IRC. Um, IRC is what they're called. They're bound, they're bound to confidentiality, so, so the non-disclosure agreement was not necessary. So just to stop you there, why in the world did they want a non-disclosure? Like about revealing what the ceremonies were going to be like or, or... Well, and the big names coming in to perform. Oh yeah, that's top secret. <laughs> it, wow. And it was, it was really unfortunate because um, we're not allowed to accept anything as government employees and uh, offered tickets to mm. uh, the closing ceremonies and wasn't allowed to accept them. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. And didn't get to go. <laughs> Oh, that's terrible. Yeah, it was sad. But but I stayed downtown for the entire time. I had a friend's apartment and, and basically had to be available pretty much 24-7. There were three of us on the lead team uh, in that unit, and one of us always had to be available 24-7. But um, because I had the av ability to stay downtown, uh, I was usually the one on call for, for any emergency or CBSA issues. Hmm. Wow, that's really cool. That's really neat. I can only imagine that must have been just a real wonderful experience with all, everything going on at that time. It was very cool to be in the city during the Olympics, yeah. Oh, I'm very jealous. <laughs> well, I'm going to continue on with the last part of the uh, uh, the recognition of, of, of what you've accomplished with some, some accolades. And uh, I understand that while you're employed with CIC, you were recognized not once, but three times nationally for your initiatives in outreach pretty much in outreach yeah twice uh what's the public so head of the public service award it was under two different names and i can't remember what they were and then once was the deputy minister's award so uh, excellence in service yep that, that is awesome and you know i can tell you as uh, someone who spent some time trying to organize uh, different section meetings for our Canadian Bar Association and things like that. Oh boy, to find people such as yourself who were able uh, to come out and, and uh, do some of these uh, outreach initiatives, um, it was just, yeah, it was wonderful. And over the last little while, and I'm sure you've seen the transition as well, it has become more and more difficult to uh, to really get officers that are able to come out and talk, and so that's that's really cool that you uh, that was right up your alley. Yeah, I actually that was my favorite part of the job was was the outreach. Fantastic. Well, we can consider this an extended outreach <laughs> to the world. <laughs> there <you go. laughs> awesome. Well, every time I bring a guest on, I ask this question: How did you get into immigration? Well, mine was kind of by accident. I'm one of those people that graduated from university with a degree that was generic in, in psychology and wound up falling into the government and um, basically applied on a competition. I, I get bored easily, and I had gotten tired of working for income security programs, which is now part of ESDC, uh, and applied on a competition with immigration, wound up going there. And the thing that I loved about immigration was... I never had to do the same thing for longer than a few years. Not only could I move around in programs, but there was always opportunity assignments um, across the country and overseas. So there's just so much variety in the program of immigration that it's for someone that likes to change things up. It's the perfect occupation on either the inside or the outside. Absolutely. I agree 100%. Um, it's interesting with the practice of law, 
in some areas of the law, you set up your precedents and you have everything all in place when you, you know, after the first yeah. couple of years of practice, and then it's just letting the machine run itself. Well, oh my goodness, that is the complete opposite from immigration. You don't ever dare rely on a previous precedent uh, going forward. You always have to go back to the source to make sure the government hasn't changed a program or that there isn't a new form. And oh, it's it's the most um, just rough and tumble type of a, a practice I could I could imagine. Yeah, and I would say not only that, it's one of the few areas of law where there's so much discretion decision making. Yes. You know, and that's a that's a it's interesting because the arguments can go both for and against. Some people want certainty. We need certainty. Well, yeah. I, I can tell you, you know, the, during the times that I was on the border working, um, if if I had someone come in and I was bound, you know, to, to issue or, or to make a decision in a certain way and I didn't have discretion to accommodate for you know, really when there was just a remedy cried out to, to right. you know, to be applied in those circumstances, you know, it, it can be a real blessing when there's that discretion. So it's a, it's a little bit of a double-edged sword, but yeah, without a doubt, that is one of the areas of, of the law where there's a lot of uncertainty, um, for sure. All right. Well, the topic that we are going to cover today in our podcast is study permits. And I know that we could definitely have you back on to talk about just a whole host of different areas, but I don't want to, uh, I don't want to take advantage of your goodwill here and your willingness to, to come on the podcast. And so I thought what I'd do is maybe just start off with a few basic statistics on study permits, because a lot of people just aren't aware, you know, as lawyers, we tend to have people come see us after the fact when they run into problems or their study permit has been refused. And and so I thought maybe I'd just lead a little bit with some basic statistics, and then we're going to tap into your industry knowledge and uh, and get um, just an, an insider's perspective to how these applications are adjudicated, what officers look for in applications, and just some of the red flags. How does that sound? Sounds perfect. All right. So I found it really interesting. Um, you had uh, alluded to some of these facts in the uh, the last Canadian Bar Association's Immigration Conference in Vancouver. You, you spoke on the panel uh, that covered study permits, and you'd brought up some of these statistics, which I found are interesting. Now, they're, they're a couple years old, but I think they pretty much hold true to today. Um, 55% of students to Canada are male. Um, 62% are between the ages of 18 and 25, which makes sense. Um, 42% head to the university, at least that they're university students. And um, of the top source countries, we've got about 22% coming from China, 11% from India, and 9% from the Republic of Korea. So a lot of the, uh, a lot of the students come from those countries. And in terms of destination where they're headed, Ontario most definitely dominates with 41% of students headed there. And then BC, where you're located, 28% uh, head to BC, uh, and then 16% for Quebec. And it's interesting, uh, I didn't see those stats as to how many are coming here to my dear province of Alberta, but uh, I guess after this podcast, maybe we can change some minds and people will want to come to this wonderful province of, uh, of Alberta. <laughs> I think people tend to... They have large communities of support as well. I yes. Mean, that's my experience. Yeah, absolutely. That is the case. And uh, like you indicated, uh, in terms of those communities, you know, the big, the big three in Canada, Toronto, Vancouver, and Montreal, 26% of all the students wind up in Toronto, 19% in Vancouver, and 12 in Montreal. So right. that holds true. Now, another f interesting uh, statistic that, I, that you had shared with us was the approval rate for study permits. And although, you know, the top source countries are coming from countries that require visas, the approval rate remains quite high. And on average, it's right between, right, you know, right around 71 to 75 percent. And that's back in, in 2013. But uh, those rates are, are, are pretty high. And sometimes as lawyers and, and those who are interacting with the program a lot, um, people contact us, like I said, when they have refusals. And so sometimes it feels almost like the refusal rates are higher than they really are. But uh, 71 to 75 percent, that's not a bad rate. No, and as a matter of fact, that's a big shift from I, I did a stint as a visa officer in Chandigarh for a while in 2006. And at that point, um, the refusal rate was much higher than the approval rate. And I think that's a big shift. Hmm, interesting. 
Huh, boy, I've got when you when you bring up these stories, I think of other officers that I know that went over there, and and I was going to ask you, hey, do you know so and so? But we'll leave that for off topic later. <laughs> Indeed. All right. Well, let's. I know our listeners are dying to get this insight um, on on the study permit process, so let's just jump right into it. So right off the bat, there's obviously some common areas where people kind of get a little bit tripped up uh, within the application process. We have these nice little checklists and guides that are designed to help people and they can go through dutifully and and complete them but inevitably there's still sometimes some gaps and people just aren't quite sure or they have these common little mistakes that they misinterpret the the guide Um, are there certain documents or or just typical things that people forget to include that they really should not not so much documents. I, I, I would say there's a few things that, that your average applicant probably doesn't do. From my experience, a lot of them don't read the application guide because they're big. But what I find with the application guide is the information in those tends to be the most accurate and the most recent of anything that you will find on the web. And the reason for that is whenever a new program comes out, and I know this from working in Ottawa, the first thing that gets updated is the application guide before even the website. And um, so, so people should read in some detail that application guide. The second thing, as silly as it sounds, people forget to sign things. <laughs> and, and you can talk to any processing officer at any part of CIC, and they will always tell you to check that you've signed it. Now, it's a little different now with some of the online applications, but I'm speaking of the paper applications. And the third big one that happens a lot is... Um, when you look at the histories is gaps Mm -hmm. gaps in those histories can come back to haunt you you may have something to add to that mark yeah well i know for a fact it's not just study permits right it's across the board whether it's permanent resident applications or otherwise and whenever we're assisting um, individuals and they're completing those background declarations that is the single most common place that people run into trouble they don't account for the fact that they they need to um, identify every month where they've been. And so, yeah, I agree 100% with you. Yeah, and it's even worse now with the online because I think it's day, month, and year. Oh, yeah. Oh, that was the worst shock, I tell you, when Express Entry started. (laughs) Yeah, to us too. (laughs) Mm -hmm, When we had to go back and start remembering, oh, 10 years ago, the very day? And yeah. so, uh, yeah, that's a whole different discussion as well, how to navigate around that, uh, those issues. But yeah, keeping, making sure that there's no gaps in, uh, in your history, I can totally understand why you'd say that. All right. So the next area that I know I get more questions about probably than anything else is this whole concept of proof of financial support and how much money do I need to have when I'm filing my first study permit application? The rule of thumb, and I think it still holds true, and, and you, can, you can correct me if you know differently, is that you need to prove that you have enough money um, to pay the tuition. You have to show that you have enough money to pay the tuition and to live for the first year, which tends to range, depend on where you're going, um, ten to 14000 Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have anything to add to that? I don't know if you would agree with that or not. I would. I would 100%. And so if that's kind of the range, um, when you're applying for your study permit, the source of those funds, is that a big deal? Like where these students are getting them from? Yeah, it can be. Um, And I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about this when we get into bona fides. The best source of funds is if the family in the home country can provide the funds because that shows that um, this is a family that has the means to travel and to support their children's education. When you start showing that a family in the home country doesn't have the funds and that the funds are coming from Canada, the, the, the country of destination, that can be a good thing and a bad thing. It shows that they have funds, but it also may add to the picture that the the, the person concerned, the student, has more reason to remain in Canada than to return to the home country. It, it just um, adds to an imbalance when you're looking at ties. So funds that either the student has earned themselves or that the family in the home country has are preferable to full-on support from a Canadian relative. Hmm. 
Now, I also have people that ask me, okay, well, our property is worth this much and and we've got these other assets that are not entirely liquid assets right now. Can we use those as uh, supporting evidence of financial support with the understanding that we're going to either sell these or we're going to make these funds available throughout the year? How does immigration treat those types of, of funds that are not entirely liquid yeah, very good question. Um, they look at liquid assets only. I, and, and India was a really good example of that when I was in Chandigarh because property was really inflated. And just because it showed a, a face value of a certain amount didn't mean you could either sell it or borrow on it. So uh, like an, an asset like property or other types of assets don't really go shouldn't really be used to support uh, funding a student. It should be liquid assets, usually money in the bank. And the other thing about money in the bank, while we're talking about money in the bank, they'll usually want to go back a few months because a common practice in immigration is well aware of this is to have a number of people, family members or other people, throw everything they've got into one bank account so it appears like a person has more money than they actually do. Countries where that happens, uh, the Department of Immigration is usually well aware of that practice and that's one of the reasons you'll see in certain countries that they want to show um, a bank history, not just uh, an amount on the day of the application. Gotcha. And so they recognize, okay, yes, this is a student coming to Canada. They are right. not going to be flush with cash. They are going to need to rely on other people to support them, as many students do in Canada. Yeah. Um, but the reality is it has to make sense. It has to be reasonable. And so, like you've identified there, this huge, you know, dump of uh, $18,000 Canadian into an account the day before the application was filed is probably not the best practice. Right. And, and, and the whole reasonable common sense thing is, is a theme that runs through everything um, that you're doing. Uh, so if what I always tell people to do, and this goes to practitioners and applicants, is um, step outside this yourself and step outside even what it says on the website and what the forms tell you you have to do and just look at it as if you were um a normal person saying does this make sense <laughs> <laughs> that's you know that's great advice the the hard times the hard the, the trouble i should say that some people have is <laughs> being able to actually do that in a, in an objective fashion yeah and uh, that's the hard part because you're always kind of tainted and you feel, well, that should be good enough or, you know, what's wrong with that? You should accept this when in reality it's got red flags all over the place. Yeah. So you brought up something in terms of, uh, you know, financial support and, and uh, the timing of receiving those funds and how important it is to, to right. have it in advance and make sure that it's there in the account for a few months before, you know, the application is submitted. You indicated that that leads a little bit to more of this this assessment of the bona fides of an application and whether this application is really genuine and legitimate. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I mean, to me, bona fides is probably the most central um, part of any application and study permit is no different. I, you know, I talked about checking off all your little boxes and make sure you have all the requirements for a study permit. But I think you have to take one step back from that if you're from a country where a visa is required. And the, the, there's two things that a visa officer, before they even get to the study permit, is really looking at. Um, as we, we spoke about funds, they're looking at that. You know, will you be able to support yourself or will the student have support when they're in Canada? And the other thing is, um, will they return to their country of origin? And those are the biggest central issues and you'll find out almost all refusals are either you haven't satisfied us that you have sufficient ties to your country you haven't satisfied that you have the funds to support yourself or you haven't satisfied us that you will return at the end of your stay and man i could talk about that for about an hour <laughs> i so can let imagine try, let me try to keep this as short as possible no this is good please please <laughs> this is the best most juicy information that we could put on this podcast so please don't hold back the the, the first thing with bona fides they're going to look at is um Who's who's in the home country and who's in Canada? And, you know, is somebody that wound up 
not meeting the required age for a family class application and everybody else is in Canada and they're the only person left in um, the home country. And what I'm leading to is, is, is it going to look like this is a ploy to get somebody to Canada so that they can do whatever, stay with their family that came ahead of them, get married uh, um, in certain countries where arranged marriages are common. Single people of marriageable age are going to receive more scrutiny than perhaps somebody with a family that's not going with them. So they're returning back to their family. Um, things like, uh, is the field of study consistent with their occupation and with their previous field of studies? Um, is it something that's uh, going to bring them recognition, um, not only in their home country, but internationally? Many people, if, if there's just something um, a little bit off about it, sometimes you'll see somebody choosing the cheapest course of study they can get and it has nothing to do with their occupation it has nothing to do with uh, their previous course of study and um, they are they have a lot of family members in Canada and right off the bat you've got red flags flying all over the place so if I'm trying to think if you know that something's off um, you'd better have one of those good common sense reasons to explain it. And that should go into the application. Don't wait until you're refused. Step in here because I, I can yeah. feel myself going nope. off various tangents. No, no, you're, you're exactly right. And I think people sometimes are afraid when they're submitting these applications, they know where the problem areas are. And so often they will think, mm, if I'm just silent, maybe the officer won't you know, even think about it. And if I, if I bring it out there and put it out there in my application, maybe it's going to cause more harm. And I can tell you, it's been my experience that you are far better off to be proactive in your responses, to address right up at the front, any issues that you recognize an officer could have, and then provide evidence to, to respond to it and to support it. And, uh, I agree a hundred percent with you because uh, sometimes people will, you know, they'll try to be a little bit evasive and, you know, it's just staring an officer right in the face that there's a there's a problem and there's a concern. Now, it's nice because you you you're you're helping me out here and you're leading me right along into each of these next questions that I want to ask. And and uh, you know, obviously, bona fides are a huge issue. And um, you've brought up some great examples of circumstances that that create these red flags. And I want to I want to draw a little bit more out of you with respect to these red flags. So if you're an officer and you've got an application in front of you, you've processed a thousand applications before this. Are there certain things, certain triggers? Well, I guess we could call them red flags within an application that cause an officer to say, hmm, this is going on. The, I'm going to look into this a little bit further pile. Yeah, well, there's there, there's kind of two kinds of red flag triggers. One would be the generic triggers, and I've already mentioned some of those, something that's not consistent with your field of study you'll see, or, or with your occupation. There has to be a reason that you're going. And, and the reason may just be that you're looking to change occupations and, you know, you want to go and take a, a cooking class or, or become a chef or a sommelier or something. And your family is, you know, financially well off and, and you can, and you can travel and you may have connections in the hotel industry and you can things in, but if it seems to be coming completely out of left field, that's going to be, um, an issue. If, if all of a sudden you're doing something completely different. Um, uh, again, we've talked about finances. We've talked about, um, who family members, um, we've talked about, uh, countries where there may be a situation, um, again, countries where arranged marriages are common if they're at a certain age, um, and, uh, they, they're of marriageable age and they're coming. It, it may not even be in the, in the decision, but it might be in the back of a person's head. Um, these are you know, patterns, right? These are these are patterns that you see consistently. So obviously, depending on the source country, depending upon where you're coming from, 
just culturally, there's going to be flags that are going to be there that, you know, to some extent are going to, to color your application, whether it applies directly to you or not. And so, you know, you take those, those factors into consideration when you're submitting your application and try and address those. Because, you know, even within countries and visa office by visa office, there are some country specific uh, requirements that go above and beyond, say, Absolutely. the immigration guide, right, that you have to be aware of. And there's a good reason why those questions are being asked. Absolutely. And, and, and you know, there's any, there's any number of those. I, I was looking recently at the requirements for a study permit from China, and they wanted to see source of funds because historically, um, you know, not so long ago when, when China was just sort of emerging from a very communist regime, anyone with lots of money um, didn't necessarily come by it legally. Now that's changed <laughs> yeah. now, mm-hmm. but there's, there's a history there. And so you have, what it is, the applicants, if they're from that country and they lived in that country recently, they'll be aware of the issues. And, and uh, a practitioner who's either worked in that country or is from that country will be aware of those issues. But someone like like myself or like you that's, you know, born in Canada, grew up in Canada, mm-hmm. may not, may not have thought of that. And what you need to do, I think, if, if you're a new practitioner, is you need to talk to other people um, about specific visa countries. Um you know, I, I could name all sorts of things because from working in Intel, uh, there there are different countries where different. There are certain periods, for example, when I was in Chandigarh, where um, it was people who had served in the military. We had to look at people who had served in the military just to make sure that there were no issues related to that. I, you know, certain questions that are asked in visa-specific areas are asked for a reason, and so if you're looking at a specific visa specific application and additional documents that are required and you see something that doesn't make sense to you you want to ask around and see if you can figure out why that is and and you know it may not even be something you need to mention but it might be you know and that's a great point and i think this is what's this is something that people do not understand you know i have clients that will come in and they will come into my office and at the end of our our consultation and I charge for my consultations. We we have we cover a lot of ground in there, and they leave with a lot of information. Yeah. Um, but in the end, you know, occasionally I'll get a client that says, "Well, what's the difference if you are are assisting me or if we do it ourselves? You know, what's what's really the value added?" And it's interesting um, because usually the one thing I point out right away is that you're not paying me to fill out the form for you. You have a brain, you are intelligent, you can read what the question asks and be intelligent enough to to fill in the answer. But more often than not, what I find, it's what you don't know, what's not written. The All of these cultural things, I guess, even from an internal immigration perspective, that are not set out in the guides, that are that are not intuitive, that is really the reason that you're going to look to someone <clears throat> who has some experience with that particular area and you highlighted very well the importance of of understanding the cultures in each of these countries and uh, if you just go into it blindly and when i say blindly i mean anyone who just turns on the computer goes to the uh, citizenship or the immigration refugee irk site and uh and looks at the guide, reads the guide, they do their very best, and that's all good, and it could go just fine for you. But in many cases, there are things that are kind of floating around there in the background that you're just not familiar with, and the way in which you answer a question, you may intend it to be interpreted one way, and it's interpreted by an officer in a completely other way. And the only way you know is by getting your application refused and then having to go back and do an access to information request to try and figure out exactly what the real reasons were. Yeah, and and I find that um, having gone from one side to the other has been very interesting, and the change in culture within the department from from when I was there before, when you could actually speak to a person, to now when it's very difficult to even get a letter to a person, that um, I used to say when I first started doing this, oh, you don't need representation, you can do it yourself, or let's do a consultation, then you can do it yourself. But, but more and more, I'm finding it's not as easy as it used to be. And um, 
many, well, not many, but one or two of the people that I've done consultations for, things have changed mid-process and they didn't notice. And a really good example was the $100 for an open work permit. And yes. things get screwed up and, and they get these minimal conversations with the call center. They call to find out what's happening and the call center will make their decision based on very limited information. They don't ask enough questions because they don't have time to. And, you know, a little thing can turn into a full-blown issue. And even as a practitioner, trying to find out what happened is very, very complicated. It's almost better these days to get someone to steer you through the process. It, it, it's just, it's very challenging. And, and I've been with, you know, immigration for a long time now. It's, it's going on to 30 years. And I still reread everything even before I give advice. Yes. Yeah. That is exactly, you know, one of the things at the beginning of our, our, our little podcast here that, that I, I identified it's, it's a world where, uh, you, you, you have to go back, you have to double check, you have to read everything and you cannot take anything for granted. And that doesn't matter if you're uh, someone who has, you know, over 30 years of industry experience, or, you know, you've gone to law school and consider yourself to be just the smartest thing there is, or, or you've, uh, you know, you were, you successfully brought foreign workers into your company as the HR manager, and then, you know, took the immigration consultant courses and now are out on your own. It doesn't matter who you are or an individual who's, it's their first interaction with immigration. You must make sure that you've read everything and reviewed it so that you know exactly what you need to do. And it goes even beyond that because you have to be aware of the political situation. Red flags change. Where are your refugee claims coming from, for example? Like for a long time, there was no visa on Mexico. All of a sudden, there was a lot of refugee claims from Mexico and a visa was imposed. They're talking now about taking that visa off. Same thing with Czechoslovakia and the Ukraine where, where you know, there was no visa. I don't know if they have one on Czechoslovakia still, but they do on the Ukraine. But that that was related to um, having a lot of problems with Roma coming over. And so if you need to go beyond even the department and kind of make sure you're politically aware, where are your refugee claims coming? Where are there problems in the world? Um, where are things changing dramatically? Uh, where are economic migrants coming from? All of those things, right? You need to, it, it's, it's really interesting, but it's also really challenging to make sure you're on top of things. I'll, I'll give you a really good example, actually. When I was doing um, refugees many years ago, there was a big economic crisis in Asia, and all of a sudden all the students wanted to make refugee claims because it meant they could get a work permit because their funding dried up from the home country. Their parents weren't supporting them. And we wound up having to do a lot of counseling because if they made a refugee claim, that would basically prohibit them later from getting another legitimate permit. Like you have to think beyond one little box and, and you know, consider the implications of other possible programs or down the road, what that could mean. Because if they had made claims, they're immediately put on a removal order. Yeah, you are exactly right. And I think, you know, to the provisions that we're aware of, like the one for destitute students that allow them to obtain a, a work permit to, you know, right. in, at least in those days to be able to, to support yourself, that's where they were created to a large extent is to accommodate for the realities that, you know, that students go through. And, um, and uh, yeah, and sometimes when you're going through the process, um, you're even asked to come in for an interview. And so let's transition just a little bit to that. And maybe that'll be the, the, okay. the part we, we close off on. But, you know, I haven't had any of my clients that have actually been called in for an interview. But wh why do they do that? And what, what can someone expect if that happens to them? Are we talking in Canada or outside of outside. Canada? Outside. Let's, yeah, okay. the visa office is abroad. Although, uh, you know, it's interesting, um, in my office, Billy, Billy Young here, she, um, she's uh, an immigration, she was the main admissions officer here in Lethbridge before she joined my office. And so a few podcasts back, we, uh, we did a spousal sponsorship uh, mock kind of story where she she ran through the whole process of uh you know what happens if if they don't buy the story of the sponsorship being genuine the you know the relationship being genuine and everything from sending the cbsa officers to the home to coming in for the uh, interview and so we had lots of fun from that from that perspective but maybe you can shed a little bit of light on the overseas visa office and and what people can expect if they are called in for an interview 
Well, to start with, in an overseas visa office, they do ridiculous numbers in a given day. Um, I think the average is between 70 and 100 decisions a day. So you're not looking at a lot of interviews. Um, if it, They're going to fall on one side of the fence uh, unless it's really, really likely that they might be approved if they get an interview. When when I was working overseas, um, if, if I could refuse, if there was enough to refuse on, I would refuse. But if I thought somebody deserved a chance, then I might interview them if I, I thought there was a chance that they would they would qualify. So from that perspective, when I was doing it, an interview was a good thing because it meant you stand stood a shot. The other thing that tends to come up, um, want credibility, um, but only uh, credibility that might lead to a bigger picture, because again, you'd probably just refuse it if it was sort of mm -hmm. on the fence. Or sometimes um, we would see, it was almost like, um, trying to think of how to put this, uh, it was almost bordering on fraud, and, and a lot of it had to do, and, and again, I'm speaking from personal experience only, and it could be different in other visa posts, but a lot of it had to do with ghost consultants. Mm -hmm. And what you would start to see would be... Um, a lot of applications that looked identical and uh, you'd call them in and a big one was English. You, you doubted that maybe this person just based on, you know, everything that they'd submitted, it was highly unlikely that they would be fluent in English the way they were stating. And if you started to see a lot of problems with a similar type of application, you might start to want to gather intelligence and, and uh, to try to lead to something more, some enforcement action. Hmm. Interesting. Well, that makes a lot of sense. So I guess the moral of that story is if you are called in for an interview, it's not necessarily a bad thing because if there was a clear question as to whether or not the, uh, the application should actually be approved, uh, most officers, because of the high volumes that they go through, are just going to refuse it Absolutely. versus wasting time bringing someone in for an interview just to confirm what they already suspect. Yeah, I, I, I would say usually an interview is more likely to lead to an approval than a refusal, or at least that was my experience. Um, because if they can refuse you, they're just going to... Particularly, here's a good point, actually. I, I'd like to say this. I, I've, I've talked to ex-colleagues about it. It's easy to refuse a study permit because no one challenges it at federal court because it's very expensive. You see very, very few challenges of study permit refusal. So it's easy to err on the side of refusal. Hmm. That's great insight. And it's interesting because uh, shifting a little bit of gears, and I, I don't want to get too far off our topic, but that's really to a large extent our, our labor market impact assessment process over the last few years. For years and years, no one ever bothered challenging, at least no employers bothered challenging a refusal because you just resubmit it. But with the really challenging decisions that are, have been coming out over the last couple of years and how really un, uh, just completely uh, in an unintelligible the, the LMIA process is, we're now starting to see the odd judicial review of these decisions of officers. So that makes perfect sense that, uh, yeah, that people are just not going to be spending the, the, the money to, to challenge a study permit refusal. You'll, you'll try and get the access to information um, and privacy notes from, from the officer's file and then see if there's anything you can do to address that. And I guess maybe that's the last, well, second last question I'm going to ask you is um, second applications. How successful are they if people come back and, and try to address um, the concerns of the officer in the first refusal? They, they can be successful. Um, I, I, you know, visa officers are human too. There are going to be some that tend to refuse more and some, some that tend to approve more. Um, the other thing is if you get the notes and the reasons uh, for refusal... Uh, resulted from a lack of information or something not being explained well, um, it should always, if possible, go to a different officer. So, so you will have a fresh set of eyes looking at it. It's more difficult in a small office. When, when I was working in a small overseas office, there were only 
two to three of us at any given time doing temporary residence. So usually if you got refused four times, you were back at You're the back. officer. <laughs> yeah, because they're not, again, they're not going to send it to a, to a big office unless it's a, a fairly large issue. Um, a lot of times they don't have representation, so they maybe haven't put their best um, case forward. And, you know, it's okay. Like what I always do when I um, submit something, and uh, I, I know a, an applicant wouldn't normally do this, is to say um, first off that they they completely, they've been counseled on the terms and conditions and that they understand fully what they have to do and that they will leave at the end of their stay. So I put that in writing. And the second thing is if someone is interested in remaining here permanently based on their education, I, I will say that you know ultimately they hope to apply for permanent residence at some point, but they clearly understand the principle of dual intent. And, and your average applicant isn't gonna say that whereas a practitioner should be putting that forward. I agree. That That is a great practice. I know it's one that we do, uh, we employ in our office as well. And it just all goes back to putting your, you know, your your best foot forward and, and addressing any potential concerns you see and, and, and answering, you know, responding to those concerns. All right. Well, we have taken up, I think, enough of your time for, for this podcast, but you have really knocked it out of the park. This is awesome. Um, it's fun. Before we before we drift off into the sunset, I do have um, one last question. So, if you could offer one piece of advice to the listeners that you really want them to remember and take away from our discussion today about study permits, what would it be? Well, I think it's more a generic thing. I and and it goes back to something I already said. If you can try to stand outside your own shoes and take a look at this, not even from the perspective of a visa officer, but from the perspective of every man, does this application make sense? Like is, you know, if you were just some person on the street that somebody told this story to, would they understand what you're doing? That's awesome. That's perfect. All right. Well, with all of this industry knowledge and experience and and just the wonderful insight that you've provided on the podcast today, if listeners want to get in touch with you for, you know, assistance with their study permit applications or if they have any other questions, um, what's the best way of reaching you? My, my personal preference is that people email me with the situation first because it allows me to do a little reading. Uh, I'm getting older. I don't remember things <laughs> the way I used to. Um, so my email is uh, tdwimmigration at gmail.com. Perfect. And we'll make sure that we put that in the, the show notes of the podcast so that anyone who wants to go there can find it and just simply click on it. Yep, and I'll be in Europe until July 16th. So. <laughs> oh, excellent. Oh, I'll we're... be answering any work emails till then. <laughs> That's just fine. All right. Well, thank you so much, Danny. It was an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. I appreciate the time that you took and just sharing so much insight that people would not normally get. And uh, so thank you so much. Thanks, Mark. This was fun. All right. Take care. Yeah, you too. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, that was an awesome interview. You know, it's so nice and refreshing when we bring people, well, I guess when I bring people onto the podcast, and they really bring it. You know, they really take the time to share. You know, more often than not within the legal profession, there's a tendency to just give enough <clears throat> information to make people want to call you and uh, to utilize your services. But I can tell you, the real value comes when people are willing to share their knowledge, share their insight, share the things that are simply not available in the, you know, the IRCC guides that accompany the applications, or they're not, ava not available in the policy. You know, this industry experience, the, you know, not just the war stories, but the experience that comes from those war stories that really makes the difference and, and distinguishes, distinguishes one practitioner from another. That's what this podcast is all about. And so I do my very best to try and select speakers that are, are really willing to share. And, uh, you know, let's face it, this podcast is not just for the average applicant out there. It's for practitioners as well. It's for immigration lawyers. It's for consultants. It's for the people who are in the trenches representing clients and all obviously the clients themselves in trying to navigate this complex world of Canadian immigration law policy and practice. 
And uh, that's really the purpose of this podcast. So as we go forward, I'd really encourage you to continue sharing this with people you feel may find it beneficial. If you have any suggestions for future speakers that I should get on the podcast, if you have any topics that you would like covered, please don't hesitate to reach out to me. I'm everywhere. You can find me through social media. You can leave a message on my the Canadian Immigration Podcast.com website. Uh, you can subscribe, obviously, to the podcast on iTunes, and I encourage you to do that and to rate it. Take the time to rate it. The, the more ratings I get, the, the more it becomes visible uh, to not only individuals within Canada who are searching, um, but the higher the rating, it, it, it's available internationally. And I really want to extend this to as many people as possible to just help them with this complicated process. So once again, I want to express a special appreciation to uh, Danny Willits, who was gracious enough to come on the podcast and just really brought some phenomenal content. And uh, I'd encourage all of you to continue listening in. And um, thanks so much, because without you, there would be no purpose to doing this podcast in the first place. So thanks once again. Talk to you again in the next episode. Thank you for listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, your trusted source for information on Canadian law, policy, and practice. If you would like to contribute a question for future podcasts or wish to set up a legal consultation with Mark, please visit www.ht-llp.com. Yeah.